Good morning and welcome to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumption. Stacey, how are you? Morning. I'm doing well, John. I am uh, home, as we all are in North Carolina. Oh, we've got some sunshine. I've uh, got uh, uh, working on um, cleaning out my basement in anticipation of my parents moving down with me here. So it's been a busy week and uh, continuing to work on data cleaning at the in the uh, Sapient Insights and CR Cedar research. So um, I can't complain. It's been a, been a quiet week. But how about you? Are you you're home this week still? But uh, busy working on, on lots of new things. Has it been a good week for you? It's been, it's been a great week. I am doing a ton of work with companies on their ethics programs, and it's, it's a really interesting thing. I am pretty persuaded that between health, safety, and artificial intelligence, the HR department of the future is going to have a strong um, emphasis on ethics as a way of problem solving. And what I mean by that is up until 2020, HR made a lot of decisions and they were the place you went to for a firm answer to questions. And today, what we're having to learn how to do is give answers that turn out to be wrong six weeks later. And so and there's no way around it. We don't know a whole lot about the environment that we're operating in, and we have to give answers, but the answers are always going to be based on what we know right now and what we think we're going to learn. And that means that a lot of times we're wrong. The, the, the classic example is the emphasis on ventilators at the beginning of this plague turned out to be wrong because it's not a respiratory disease. It's a blood disease. But we got all fussed up about ventilators for a while, and and it was the right thing to do because it was the best information that we had at the time. And so we're in a world where we're making decisions with the best information that we have at the time, and that's how intelligent tools work. That's how AI works. That's how health and safety work in the workplace today. And so people are asking me to help them structure things that enable them to use a more flexible kind of decision-making in their HR projects. So I'm having fun. Yeah, definitely. And it sounds like you're jumping right into the middle of many HR professionals' nightmares right now. I, 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 the, the conversation that you're having about sort of ethics and decisions-making with, with the idea that you're, you're making it on percentages of what you know at that point in time, right, and, and a level of um, comfort with it. I mean, you talk to the HR professionals who are dealing with this inside the companies, and you can just hear the weariness. It's the best way that I can explain it. So I think anybody can help them sort of better um, prepare for, for this new wave of HR will be uh, in high demand. So, so thank you for the effort. And uh, what I'm hearing is that my ethics course in college might actually come in handy a little bit more so over the next couple of years. And uh, I think it's, it's going to be a, a very interesting time to start thinking about how do you give guidance with the idea of probabilities versus the idea of a, a yes and a no or, or, a, or a right or a wrong, right? Right. And there's all sorts of stuff like 
how do you give somebody the job of cleaning the bathroom because it is a COVID contagion hotspot? What, 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 are the, what are the ethics in asking somebody to do that job? Is that a good thing to do? Or is that a thing that you have to do because you think you need to open the office, and so in order to open the office, you have to risk somebody's life? Uh, I, I wonder. I wonder. You know, framed up one way, it's we need to do it to stay in business, and framed up another way is some people are expendable, and we will pay them probably not as if they were expendable. Well, I think there's an even more difficult decision. Do I make the decision about who goes to do that based off of who has the most likelihood of of being affected by the disease, knowing that there's a percentage that, that may be more affected than others. So do I ask the younger workers to do that work versus the more elderly workers, right? And and what does that sort of, what kind of um, impact does that have on diversity and inclusion conversations inside of our organization? Or um, what kind of impact does that have on, as you said, hazard pay in our organization, right? So I think all real conversations that aren't new to HR professionals. I mean, we've had these kind of conversations if you've been in any kind of a work environment that has um, dangerous um, work um, within its um, sort of uh, purview. But I think it's just now, you know, at an extreme heightened, you know, level of conversation, right? Well, I think I think this idea that we make probabilistic decisions based on risk factors, there's been some of that in HR. That, that's true, but but we're headed into a time where most decisions are made on this basis. Yeah. Most of what HR does will be delivered in a form of probabilities rather than certainty. So it used to be that you went to HR to find out a certain answer. HR were the people who would be able to sift through all of the conflicting policies and tell you what to actually do. And now they're going to tell you that um, here's what we think you should do, and there's a 60% chance that we're right or an 80% chance that we're right. And so that's that's a different kind of answer that makes you want to have better and better questions before you give answers. So, so it's also so, about how I take that answer, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, as the person who's getting that insight, then I also have to think about how do I respond to it, right? That's the other exactly. side of this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, once, once you introduce probabilistic information into the organization, you have to have more conversations. Yeah. Because the game is to get to the best question so that when you have the best problem definition, you can understand the likelihood that your answer is going to solve the problem. And that probably sounds dreary to to a lot of people, but it makes for really robust solutions that are not band-aids. And a lot of the problem with HR over the years has been its solutions look like band-aids in hindsight. Yeah. 
Well, and a lot of the conversations that I think we're going to get into today based off of what's going on in the news is, um, I think, a, a reaction to that kind of uh, shift that's taking place in the market, right? We've got um, lots of organizations that are getting big investments right now. We've also got some traditional HR organizations that are struggling a bit. Um, we have, uh, you know, expectations for, for how people are going to be handling artificial intelligence um, from a, a notification perspective again. So, you know, to even get to what you're talking about, that means I have to be allowed to sort of access the data to give the, the, the probabilities. Um, and then, you know, there is a conversation, I think, about what does the new HR look like? And we have some interesting com- you know, conversation around that uh, put out by the Harvard Business Review and, and our friend Jeannie Meister and, and uh, some other authors about you know, tomorrow's HR f- jobs of the future. Um, they have 100 different types of uh, future expectations for what the HR professional will look like over the next 10 years. So all along this line of sort of shifting the thought process around HR, any of these topics seem um, of most interest to you based on the, the conversation we just had? Because I think that's a, a big thing for a lot of organizations, which is what does this new HR look like, right? Well, I do want to get to one thing very quickly, and that is Zap Info has been acquired by Indeed. And Zap Info is part of a guy named Doug Berg, who has been genius in the way he's built companies. He's from Minneapolis and at the heart of the Minneapolis tech scene, which is a phenomenal little microcosm. And Doug's tools are usually things that serve as middleware connecting a variety of systems to get a single result. Uh, the, the last product, I forget its name, but it was an advertising management solution that allowed you to wicker together multiple advertising sources. So you could, you could distribute recruitment ads through their system. Zap Info, as I understand it, integrates um, uh, data about candidates and pipelines between various parts of the ecosystem and various sources out beyond the company. And so it, it wants to be sort of the central switchboard for information about candidates, contact information, and that sort of stuff. And so they are now part of Indeed, uh, which is a great thing. It's a, it's a fantastic thing, and they deserve congratulations. Good work, Doug. It, and it's interesting, I think, in, in the sense that there has been a lot of conversation about whether or not the talent acquisition um, recruiting process is sort of a, a separate sort of suite of products or a, a single couple of suite of products that are just sort of all merging together. Does this kind of an integration tool, which, which helps basically, uh, and, and they're planning to sort of release it as a free resource that can be used by nearly, as they say, all ATSs or CRMs to automate the recruiting process between their ATS and CRMs and Indeed's product suite. So they're they're looking at it as, as a great tool to sort of connect Indeed to any kind of ATS and CRM. Um, does this make the case more so even that there is a, a separate set of a suite of tools that you will connect into your ATS and CRM that is that is separate from 
for the recruiting process, do you think, or is this, does this just mean it's more closely connected? Well, it's a really good question. And, and, and at its most complex, recruiting is almost not related to HR. At its simplest, recruiting is clearly a part of HR. And so there's this, there's this um, thing that happens as your recruiting efforts get bigger, they become less and less like HR. As your recruiting um, function begins, it's exactly what HR does. It's figuring out job descriptions and how people fit into the company. But when you get to scale, the the recruiting operations bit, which is what you're talking about, um, various sources, various contracts, various kinds of employees, various various destinations for ads, various ways of talking to subset groups in the recruiting process, it looks more like today, in today's model, it looks more like content marketing like HubSpot or something with the ATS and the CRM being a data source. And that makes it pretty much unlike the rest of HR. Um, But we're about to go into a time when people aren't hiring in that volume. And so, so it's interesting that indeed is doing this right now because they've got to be forecasting a massive downturn um, in revenue in 2021 and so maybe this is a way of keeping their customers plugged in as they weather the storm of what's liable to be the really great depression. Yeah, I was going to say, if if you know that um, you're going to be looking at reducing budgets in all areas of recruiting, any time you can get something that's more tightly integrated, that will be the one item you might keep. Right, um, so I can definitely see this as a play by Indeed to try and get these customers tied into them a little bit more tightly than some other tools. So yeah, it's definitely integration continues to be one of the biggest challenges, and organizations are looking for ways to reduce the number of times they have to touch those integrations. And it sounds like this would do that. So yeah. Yeah, and this is also sort of evidence of the power of LinkedIn in the marketplace, and, and that probably sounds off. A little bit, but LinkedIn recruiters at a certain scale just use LinkedIn. That doesn't mean it works very well, but it is it is a very easy way to do recruiting. That's one stop shopping if you're a little company. If you're a big company, you run into all sorts of data problems with LinkedIn because they've got bad management on enterprise level behavior. And so that's where a company like Indeed can step in and say, hey, we've got the capacity to manage, organize, and acquire contact information for your recruiting efforts in a way that's better than LinkedIn does. And that's the position of putting ZapInfo in. Well, it will be good to see, you know, where some of these recruiting organizations sort of invest over the next probably six months to a year to try and stay in line and connected to their businesses. And, and I think, you know, like you said, that connection with the data seems to be the biggest point of it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you know, do you know that Amazon has something like 3,500 recruiters on staff? 
did not know I that. Can't even, I, can't even, I can't even <laughs> think about what that means. But yeah. <laughs> Walmart and Target, you know, many of these monstrous retail companies have recruiting departments that match their employee counts. You know, and Amazon, I think, is up around 700,000 now. And, uh, so you need all different kinds of recruiters to keep to keep the attrition at bay. Uh, but it's it's... It's different when you're operating in a world where you have that many recruiters and you're trying to get the entire recruiting operation focused on, you know, a small number of KPIs. You have to do things very, very differently. And and it doesn't look like recruiting at the uh, 200-person company. doesn't look like it at all. Procedurally, it is so different that it may as well be a separate topic. And that's hard to communicate when you want to talk about recruiting as a single function inside of the HR silos. So, Well, it's, it's I, very similar to, to other processes where, where I think they have sort of created their own markets, right? Learning is, is one of those processes, right, where learning in a when you've got thousands and thousands of employees to train um, compared to learning as sort of an add-on to the organization needs, completely different applications and requirements, right? You could not use the same learning application for something that requires constant training in an organization versus an organization that only does development, you know, for leadership, right, within an organization. Two very different environments. And I think that would be the same thing with talent acquisition, correct? Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One of the things – oh, I was just going to say, moving on to some of the other – the conversations that we've got on the learning side, it is probably worth noting that Skillsoft is continuing to sort of work through its restructuring plan for debt. There was some news this week about them coming out of Chapter 11 – that threw me a little bit because I didn't hadn't really sort of put Chapter 11 and the restructuring of debt together, but it is the same thing as you had mentioned. Um, as a as a buyer in this space, you know we're hearing about all these other organizations with investments and growth. We are not seeing as much of the I would say impact in the HR tech space. I think as we've seen in some other spaces around the down economy. Uh, does it surprise you that Skillsoft and uh, what used to be the, the remnants of, of the sum total brand are sort of having to go through this kind of restructuring process now, or has this just been sort of a long time coming and they're in need of sort of rethinking their strategy a little bit? I think it might be more common than you imagine that companies go through restructuring. Restructuring means they're, mortgage payments started to exceed their revenue. And so they had to do something to reduce their mortgage payments. And uh, chapter 11 is refinancing. Uh, And in refinancing, you negotiate with your creditors about reducing your debt um, so that you've got more operating room, so that you can make decisions to invest in this or that. And start over again. And the reason that creditors agree to reduce debt load is they'd rather get paid something than nothing. Right. So chapter 11 is 
if you work with us, we'll be able to pay you something. And if you don't work with us, we can't. And so uh, they restructured the debt in in a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And it's it's just not uncommon. It's not uncommon. Most of the airlines have done this multiple times. It's bad news if you are a small vendor that they owe money to. A lot of that, a lot of times, you lose those invoices. Um, yeah. um, but but it's it's kind of a normal thing. And Skillsoft has been doing uh, an array of interesting things over the last couple of years. So I imagine they'll come out of this healthier and more vibrant. And once you've declared bankruptcy, you can't declare bankruptcy again for some period of time. And so so once they start to look stable, they'll be a very good investment for uh, people who are interested in their products. Yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting, I think, to see... I, I, Skillsoft is a story of, I think, an organization that grew very rapidly, very quickly, and, and had a lot of different arms in the market. I'm hoping they'll come out of this with some more clarity about who they are, because um, I do think that they're an amazing organization when it comes to understanding learning and development in the market um, and, and really being able to help organizations think differently about how to develop a person with a with a with an environment that's more flexible than we often see in a lot of other LMSs. But I do think they'll have to get through this, this pace where they're a little too big, too too bloated to sort of make the moves they need to move. So that would be nice to see come out of this. Speaking of organizations that grow rapidly, another name has been in the news this week that uh, we were just talking a little bit about. Um, maybe we'll mention just a little bit. Rippling, which is um, uh, run and owned by someone many of us know, um, Parker Conrad, who used to um, uh, own Zenefit and had uh, developed the Zenefit back in the day, um, just announced that he is uh, a, a received $145 million in Series B funding. Uh, this is that's a lot of money at this point in time in the market with everything that's going on, $145 million. And it's another competing product to what is now Zenefit, which is his old company that he's no longer a part of, um, offering HR, talent management, payroll as benefits, as well as offering some sort of technical IT services around app management and stuff. What do you think about this, John? It, it just makes me cringe a little bit to know that someone who did so many things wrong in the HR space, including um, basically having people who are unlicensed selling benefits, um, creating macros to get through training quickly in the benefits space so that, you know, his people could move faster. There's some real ethics issues with, with how he approached the work in the HR space, starting another HR company and getting another round of, of funding. Does this surprise you at all? Well, I think where he got in trouble um, was – was doing something that I think we should encourage more of, which is not waiting till you understand everything before you make a move. Right. So that this is this is the do you run your business by making sure that everybody gets permission and gets it right before they start, or do you run your business so that people ask forgiveness um, and make mistakes because 
they think something is logical and then they find out that there's more to it than that. And I tend to be from the go ahead, get it done, um, and see what happens perspective most of the time because it's it's just faster to make progress when you do that. So you knock things over and you make mistakes and you misunderstand the marketplace and you don't notice that you're entering into a regulated area. Those are, I think, reasonable mistakes to make if you are a um, small business dependent on these sorts of services. You need to carefully understand who you're getting in bed with. But generally speaking, I think he probably made his investors money, and so they're giving him more. And it's hard to argue with that. The the Zenefits thing was a disaster, and he um, exited after having done a pretty good job of screwing some things up. But that makes him much more knowledgeable about these things than somebody who's never had that experience. So I'll go with you there. So so if I'm an investor and I look at that, the money got made, his work, the guy made uh, some mistakes that a seasoned person wouldn't make, and guess what? That's what makes him a seasoned person. Wisdom requires experience, and you can't give experience by waiting to get permission. You get experience by doing stuff. I'll, I'll give you some of that, but I, but I'll have to say I teach the arrogance that went along with some of the approach that he took back in the benefits days. So I do remember many of the um, I'm CEO, I can make the decisions I want to make conversations that he had on podcasts and stuff still ring a little bit in my ears because um, he did have a lot of small businesses that were depending on what he was doing, right? And the impact to them was pretty heavy. Um, and he's once again in the small business space that he's that he's working with. So, so we might we might agree or disagree on this one. I I, I think uh, you know the the um, the let's run fast and make mistakes you know quickly kind of idea can have a huge impact um, on companies who don't have the ability to recover from those kind of mistakes. Right. So, good point though. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, Silicon Valley produces this sort of innovation yeah. as a primary product. And it isn't for everybody. Ultimately, they make my, things that are for everybody, but they don't get there by making it for everybody in the beginning. And the marketing and salespeople may not make that message really clear, and they probably ought to. Yeah, <laughs> they definitely don't. Uh, speaking of a little bit more conservative organization, ones that have been around for a little bit longer, um, it's also worth noting this week that we got uh, additional investment in a company that both of you, I don't know if you've had a chance to, to speak with them much, but I've had a lot of conversation with them, which is CloudPay. CloudPay raised another $35 million in gross capital. Um, they're um, out of sort of the, the U.K. Um, market. They're a global payroll. Many would call them an aggregator, but they do provide some payroll on their own. Um, and they really have created one of the early um, cloud-based aggregation tools for uh, multinational organizations, um, uh, being able to serve customers in 130-plus different countries. Um, they um, have 
you know, invested a lot over the last couple of years, I think, in creating a platform that um, allows large multinationals to view their payroll in a more aggregated way to deal with audits and stuff in a, in a more um, aggregated way while still using sort of local uh, providers and connectors in each of the, the regions. Um, definitely a space where you don't want to take as much risk when it comes to payroll because um, each country and each region has its own challenges and, and government regulations and requirements. Um, but interesting that, you know, this week we're seeing investments, large investments in, in um, from recruiting to the whole HR system to just payroll aggregators um, all the way through. We also saw investments in Thriver, which is a $33 million in Series B funding, which is an organization that um, – focuses on wellness and um, rewards and incentives. If, this is a wide mix of investments this week, John. Do you think the market's starting to sort of think a little bit more about where HR could take us in, the, in this era of COVID, and so they're sort of investing in a lot of different places? This is, I think this is just an extension of the investment that we've been seeing over the last couple of years, and the investors are getting smarter and making bigger bets. Much of what we're seeing this week involves bets that have to do with how people think the workplace is going to respond to pandemic. And that's a great big question mark. Um, I'm starting to hear many companies talking about opening back up in April. Yeah. And so so we're, we're in this new mode for a while. And when we come out of whatever this time is that we're in, we're not going back to something older. We're going back to something new. And so these, these bets that are being placed now are about what the new is going to be. Which is a pretty wide spectrum of, of cloud, virtual, and more sort of IT focused and, and wellness focused or healthcare focused, right? So I think all the things we talked about earlier wraps back around to what we're talking about here today. So lots of um, expectations, I think, that HR is going to own um, a broader set of things in the organization, I think. Yeah, maybe for the last, the last note in the show, there was a an article in the Harvard Business Review about the future of HR. And, and, and the first thing that I want to notice is this kind of junk was never published in the Harvard Business Review before <laughs> Forbes started selling vendor slots. And now Harvard Business Review is selling vendor slots. And so, so, so it's, the fact that it's in the Harvard Business Review doesn't mean what that would have meant five years ago. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but there's this thing about future jobs in, in HR, and at the top of the illustration, there is um, a director of genetic diversity. <laughs> and that is the single most frightening job title I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I, and and I had pulled. We we had the conversation about. I was like, oh, it's, it's an interesting title. I hadn't read it all the way. I thought we'd discuss it. And when you pointed out that particular one, the genetic diversity officer, my the, the hackles on the back of my neck did rise because um, I was having a conversation earlier with someone about the fact that you know 
companies are going to have access to this kind of data, especially if they're going through this COVID conversation, right? Um, you know, are you more or less likely to become infected at this point in time, right? You know, that's a genetic conversation on some level. Wow, isn't that just scary, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's also it's nonsense to believe that we're going to have good enough information about genetics in the next ten or twenty years to make hiring, succession, placement, termination challenge levels, assignments, delegation, decisions based on genetics. Right? That's what yeah. that's what the title implies, is that we're going to use genetic information as foundational in management, and that's nonsense. Uh, it's complete nonsense. It's, it's dumber than the idea that you can tell somebody's personality by the way their face moves in the video. <laughs> yes. It, it, thank you for reminding us that we once did that as human beings, right? <laughs> and that we will continue to make those kind of very sad mistakes and in, in throughout our human history. But let's hope that HR is not the purviewer of that kind of mistake <laughs> process. <laughs> Wait, let's hope HR does not get to 2030 and have this title. Um, there are a lot of other things I think that HR could be doing. Let's hope it's not where they're spending their time in 2030, <laughs> which is really not that far off. That's 10 years from now. <laughs> Less than. Yeah, so yeah. another great conversation. Um, thanks for doing this, Stacey. It's always fun. And thanks, everybody, for listening in. We love having you here in our conversations. You've been listening to HR Tech Weekly with Stacey Harris and John Sumter. Take care, and we will Thanks see you everyone. back here next week. Bye.